This is Michael J. Fox. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Learn more about the Michael J. Fox Foundation's work and how you can help speed a cure at michaeljfox.org. Welcome to a recap of our latest Third Thursday webinar. Hear directly from expert panelists as they discuss Parkinson's research and answer your questions about living with the disease. Join us live next time by registering for an upcoming webinar at michaeljfox.org. and welcome to our third Thursday's webinar. I'm your moderator today, Maggie Cool. I am Vice President of Research Engagement at the Michael J. Fox Foundation. Thank you for tuning in with us. Today we'll be talking about genetics and an exciting new approach to therapies, gene therapy, which you might have heard a little bit about. And after our next hour, you'll know hopefully a lot more. With me today are our three esteemed, four esteemed panelists. Sorry, I'm looking at three boxes. Uh, first, we have Dr. Christine Klein, who is Professor of Neurogenetics and Neurology and Director of the Institute of Neurogenetics at the University of Lübeck and University Hospital Schleswig-Holstein in Germany. And when you think Parkinson's genetics, you think Dr. Klein. So we are thrilled that she is here today for this topic. Thanks for joining us. I'm thrilled to be here. Good afternoon, everyone. Great. Thank you, Dr. Vine. Okay. And with us um, also from the Michael J. Fox Foundation is Dr. Bradford Casey. He is Senior Associate Director of Research Programs at our foundation and an expert in genomics and how our genes are translated into cellular function. So Bradford, thanks for being with us as well. Thanks for having me. And Rich and Paula Sussman. They live in New Jersey. They're joining us today. And Paula was diagnosed with Parkinson's disease in 2017. She carries a GBA mutation, which we'll talk a little bit about today. And both Rich and Paula are extreme advocates of research participation and learning everything you can about the disease and taking an active role in pursuing treatments, not only for Paula herself, but the Parkinson's community overall. So thank you, Rich and Paula, for being with us as well. It's our pleasure and anything we can do to help, we're there. All right. So with that, gene therapies, something that you might have heard of in the news, gene therapies are growing in application across diseases. Some notable uh, approvals from the Food and Drug Administration include gene therapies for spinal muscular atrophy. Just earlier this month, there was another approval for severe hemophilia. And now Parkinson's disease is in this vein of looking at gene therapies as a way to target many dysfunctions that we see with Parkinson's. To understand how gene therapies work, we have to have a bit of a foundation on what is a gene, gene mutations, and how genes play roles in what happens in our cells. So we're going to talk about that a little bit, and then we'll talk more about the different kinds of therapies that are currently in testing in this therapeutic approach and what you should consider if you would potentially be eligible to join those studies. As always, we are not endorsing one therapeutic approach over another. We are hoping to inform you of this new a frontier in therapies and hope that you share our optimism that more approaches and more targets means more shots on goal and more likelihood of success to manage Parkinson's and to slow and stop its progression. So with that, I'm going to move us in and hand it over to Dr. Klein to start our foundation of 
what are genes and how do they work? Yes. So first of all, thank you very much. So I, as you heard, I'm here in Germany. So it's already six o'clock here in the afternoon. Um, but uh, I got a lot of my training in the US in genetics uh, at, at um, Boston University. And I, I also train in Toronto. So I, I'm, I'm, you know, very close, uh, closely connected to North America. And thank you very much for having me. Uh, so what are genes? Um, I think we all have a good understanding what genes are, but let's just briefly review this and especially with a view towards gene therapy. So a gene is basically um, the core unit of inheritance. So basically we carry in each of our cells of our body all of our genetic information, the genetic code. So we have that in every single little skin cell, even in our hair, everywhere, and of course in the brain as well. And the important thing, of course, is that these genes are passed on from parents to their offspring. And we typically have two parents, so we get half of our genes from the mother and half of the genes from the father. And they then uh, contain all this information that determine our physical and also our biological traits. And we all know that, right? When we have children or when we look at our parents, we're sometimes thinking, oh, I'm so similar here. Sometimes, you know, I'm very different. And so that's all about the genes that are either, you know, transmitted the way they are or sometimes they change. And what the genes do... Um, there's a little detour, so it's not directly from gene to protein, but there is one step in between. Um, but eventually, the genes code is like a code. They code for specific proteins, and they serve very different purposes within the body. So they can be, for example, part of our bones or part of our brain, but they can also be very active little enzymes, for example, that facilitate certain uh, processes in the body. And we have a lot of those. Um, an estimated 20,000 to 25,000 genes we each carry, always in duplicate, one from the mother and one from the father. Great. Thank you. So, um, Bradford, maybe you could talk to us a little bit more about proteins and the role that those play. Dr. Klein, as you said, they do a lot of things. They're part of a lot of um, our not only makeup, but also function. So, Bradford, that might be a good next step in our foundation. Yeah, absolutely. So it's important to think about, you know, our, our body as, as really a collection of cells. And so those cells contain a lot of different things, but proteins are, are largely the structure of that. Right. And, and the genes, as Christine mentioned, are, are really how we, we build those, those different proteins. Um, that's, that's a catalog of every protein, every enzyme, a lot of the structural pieces that we might need to make. And so there are different classes of proteins and each of those is, is very different. And those vary between the cells and tissues of our body. Um, you, you can imagine, for example, that we have very complex structures. We have rigid bones, right? We have uh, we have contractile muscles that let us do things. Then we have, of course, our, our nervous system. And we need a lot of different proteins and different amounts of those proteins to make sure that we can achieve that diversity throughout our bodies. And so uh, so making sure that we have a clean map of that, making sure that all those different basic building blocks of the cell and, and of our bodies more broadly uh, is, is a key piece of understanding the importance of genetics and, and thinking through how, how those changes affect us down the road. So as we know, though, in Parkinson's, sometimes a lot of the machinery goes wrong and sometimes the factories themselves are responsible. So I wanted to bring our conversation to gene mutations, some of the things that we know that are different in the genes of people who have Parkinson's disease. I do want to state we're not going to get very deep into personal genetics. Of course, 
the Parkinson's community has many questions about heritability and the varied genes that we have identified that play a role in Parkinson's. We have a lot of educational content on our website that talks specifically about different genes. There is a link in the resource list about genetic testing and how to consider and pursue that. But for this discussion today, we want to base it on sort of those basics so that we can talk about how gene therapies might be applied to genetic mutations. So Dr. Klein, could you illuminate more on gene mutations? Absolutely. It's a pleasure. So um, a gene mutation, as you can see here, is a change in the gene. And really, a mutation is derived from the Latin word, as you may know, mutari, which means means literally to change. And of course, a change uh, in genes we have to have, right? Because we only, if you will, have these 20, 25,000 genes, and yet we are so different from one another. And of course, that, and we have so many different tasks for these genes. So it is clear that genes will have some variation and variability. Um, and this variability is our personal fingerprint. So we each have our own genetic makeup, and that is always different. And even in um, t identical twins, you can find some some few changes, and some of them actually come on later in life. That's also possible. And so change in a gene, and that raises the important question. If you go down below, you will read that researchers have found many gene mutations that raise the risk of Parkinson's disease. That is very true. They have even found mutations that I think we can say cause Parkinson's disease. So they really are the cause of Parkinson's disease. And we can relate one specific gene or even one specific mutation to a specific form of Parkinson's disease, even in an individual patient. And however, it's also true, and this is, I think, why it is so carefully phrased here, um, that this risk or this cause is not um, like a, a, a dichotomous concept. So it's not a black and white situation where either you have a cause or you just have an increased risk. Um, rather, I think it's a continuum. So there are some rare rare genes um, that are related to Parkinson's disease where you have um, a one mutation, for example, um, just to give you an example, the first gene that was found for Parkinson's disease is called alpha-synuclein. You may be familiar with this particular gene, which um, actually also is very well known in conjunction with the Lewy bodies that we, that Parkinson's disease, uh, individuals with Parkinson's disease tend to have in their brain, um, and they are made up of the of, of alpha-synuclein. So if you have alpha-synuclein, we talked before that you have one gene from the mother, one gene from the father, it can also happen that you have an extra copy. So if you have one too many, or even two too many, this can result in Parkinson's, just to give you one relatively simple example of the first gene that was found that related to Parkinson's. However, there's also this risk, So, and that's very conceivable. If you think uh, about all these 25,000 genes and the rest of our genome, there are, of course, many, many, many variables and variations you know, across different people. And it's very conceivable that it's not always just one that causes the disease, but sometimes many have to come together, or others, some, can modify, um, you know, what one causal mutation does. So it's a relatively complex scenario, and this is why I don't like to see it as a black and white. And sometimes, and that's the last thing I'll say, sometimes it's very difficult for us in genetics uh, to really determine whether a change that is or a mutation that is found is actually causal, so with a very high probability will cause and result in Parkinson's, or is just a risk factor that may or may not cause the disease, or maybe something totally benign that may be relatively rare, so maybe we haven't found it before, but when you look closely, you'll find it in other people as well, and maybe it doesn't even matter. 
So this determination and interpretation is extremely important, but also challenging. Um, yeah, and so these changes can, of course, impact the protein. Remember, the protein is the kind of final step. Um, of course, if you have a mutation, this may result in a change in the protein and when you want, would like to learn more, and we heard this already uh, from Maggie, so when you want to learn more on genetic testing opportunities and options, you can please use the, the link that's indicated here. So it sounds like we we have a strong base of knowledge around some of the genetic mutations that are linked to Parkinson's disease. None of them are an absolute cause of Parkinson's. Um, there is a continuum. And we do know, though, that when something does go awry and it causes Parkinson's, there's an impact on the proteins sort of downstream of those. And what I take from these conversations is that it's so helpful to learn about genetics because it teaches us so much more about the disease and this cascade of things that can go wrong. Sometimes um, even in people who don't start with that mutation, but just other factors impact the same pathway and, and you end up with that same dysfunction. So we've established Genes and proteins are these building blocks of how we function. Sometimes things go wrong with mutations and lead to disease, but that's a very val valuable thing to know because it teaches us about disease. And as we'll discuss more, it may teach us how to intervene and stop it. So I want to turn the discussion over to, to you, Paula and Rich, and talk about your own Parkinson's journey and your discovery of your GBA mutation and just reflect on all that Dr. Klein and Dr. Casey have shared with us thus far. Okay, so as somebody already mentioned, I was diagnosed with uh, PD in the fall of 17. In uh, the fall of 18, my husband suggested that I be genetically tested, um, partly because my dad had PD. And there are other members of our family a little further out than me that had PD also. So I had the genetic testing done, which was the easiest thing in the world to do. You just spit into a test tube, figure I can do that. Um, I was found to have the GBA mutation, and then my brother decided he would also test. Um, he has the same genetic mutation that I do, the same GBA, um, but he does not have PD. So as Dr. Klein noted, it's not a guarantee that you have or don't have it. Um, his two children tested. They have the same genetic mutation, but they do not have PD. And only one of my three children has decided to have the testing, and she does not have the same mutation. I kind of figured that if I did have some genetic link potentially to Parkinson. It might be something easier for me to focus on looking for cures that deal with the GV end of it. It's, I'm not a scientist, but that was my thought. I've taken on the, the role of trying to learn as much as I can about PD with the GBA mutation and to share anything positive, optimistic with Paula. And th there's quite a lot to be optimistic about. Uh, we know that the particular mutation that Paula has is on the mild end of the scale. That's good to know. Not all mutations are the same. Um, we've also learned from resources like this and other Fox resources and speaking to researchers that many Parkinson's researchers believe that the effects of Polar's mutation are kind of the root cause of her Parkinson's. And if you could address that, then you have a really good chance of being able to slow down or halt the progression. And there are many different approaches that are currently in clinical trials or about to enter clinical trials or you know, soon thereafter will enter uh, clinical trials. So we believe we have reasons to be very optimistic. Can we share that optimism with you, Rich? And we just want to emphasize too, genetic testing is such a personal decision. It varies individual, you know, as you shared, 
some of your children have chosen to be tested and others have not. So um, it's something to certainly talk with your physician and your family about, but there are resources to help you have those conversations. Genetic counselors can be a very valuable partner even before the test in helping to understand what you may or may not learn and what that might mean for you. Um, but I did want to turn to you, um, Bradford, Dr. Casey, because we often hear people are genetically tested and they receive a negative result from the panel that this test uses, the, the genes that this test tests for, then they think, I don't have a genetic link to Parkinson's. And actually, we are learning so much about Parkinson's genetics constantly that there's still a lot to discover. And so if you're, if you're watching right now and you're thinking, well, I've been tested for GBA and I know I don't carry that, what would you say to those listeners? You know, there's, there's still a lot to learn out there. Yeah, that's a great question, Maggie. I'm so glad you asked. So, um, so you're right. It, it's important to remember that genetic testing takes a lot of different forms, uh, and those tests are constantly evolving as our understanding of the disease evolves. So, for example, within GBA, we know that there are, there's a number of different GBA mutations and variants, the you know changes that may not lead specifically or be tied to disease. And, and we know that, there's, that there is a spectrum of risk there. And so as we learn more and more about the disease, we're also testing for more of those variants and trying to add those to the different testing technologies and get those into the hands of clinicians and patients. Um, and that may tell patients more about their risk. There may be tests that, uh, that you think were run because you had one genetic test years ago, but, uh, but in fact, the, the test has changed over the years to en encompass more spots. And you can think of that more broadly in disease. You know, we're just, we're always learning so much. This is a field that has changed so rapidly just in the last few years uh, that the number of tests that are run, even by the same clinician using the same, the same essential test and, and billing, uh, would actually encompass a lot more knowledge about your, your genetics. And so it's, it's really important to remember that part's changing. It's also important to think again about that spectrum of risk. You know, um, I often tell people that if you think about uh, about your DNA as kind of the cookbook of, of all the different proteins that your body needs to make, again, those proteins, those are the final dishes, right? And so there's there's a wide range of severity. You can imagine if you're doing some baking, for example, doubling the amount of vanilla in, in a batch of cookies isn't going to be a, a deal killer. But if you forget the baking powder or something like that, you could end up with something that doesn't really look like what you're hoping for. And so it's just the same with our genetic code. You know, there's, there is a wide range. We really want to be mindful uh, about just thinking about that severity, thinking about how it may affect different patients and, uh, and, and allow us to learn more again about, about how those changes translate to actual human disease. So I, I think that, again, you know, it's, it's just important to remember that there is that diversity. Things are always changing, and it's, and it's important to understand that, uh, that not all genetic testing is the same. And that's part of the reason that we encourage people to really dig into what may be available to you. Uh, research testing is different, for example, than general clinical testing. And we're running a lot of different um, studies that, that, that run a, a wide range so that we can help improve that understanding and ultimately make sure that we're bringing that knowledge back to the research community so that we can develop treatments around it. Yes, development of treatments is certainly the goal. So why don't we pivot back to our topic about gene therapies? And we hopefully have laid some strong foundation of genes and proteins and gene mutations. And now going back to how we might intervene and use this approach and use this, this machinery, this framework to stop, slow, potentially prevent disease. So we have a couple bullets and a, a sort of basic what is gene therapy here primer? And Dr. Klein, I might ask you to introduce this topic. Yes, very happy to do so. 
Um, so when we try to understand gene therapy, um, I think the basic building block is really that gene therapy modifies a person's genes um, with the aim, obviously, to treat or to cure the disease um, or to modify its course. So that's the idea to definitely make it better. So, um, however, um, what is very important to note, um, and we've talked a lot about now mutations, and you may think, well, these mutations... Um, very interesting, but they're very rare. And for example, I had genetic testing done and nobody found any mutation. Um, as Dr. Casey also just said, you know, it may depend on various things, on the technique or just on the fact that nothing is to be found. And um, and so it's important to note that gene therapy could have and can have two potential targets. So it can be um, the idea to correct or to um, replace, for example, a, a gene, a faulty gene that doesn't work properly um, and that because it has a mutation, but it can also potentially be for people with uh, without um, PD-linked mutations with the forms that we call idiopathic PD, so where we do not find any um, mutation. And why is that? So, and, and that was already alluded to previously, and maybe I should also give you one number that was just recently presented at the World's uh, Parkinson's Congress, and there were two very large studies. One is the PD generation study that some of you may have participated in. It took place or takes place in the U.S., mainly the other one being the ROPAT study, also with branches in the U.S. Together, they analyzed more than 25,000 patients with PD. And they found almost the same, although they were very, you know, independently done. They found the exact same uh, result, almost exact same results. And that is between 14 and 15 percent um, of all of the patients tested within these studies uh, carry a mutation in a PD, known PD gene, I should say, because as Dr. Hayes said, there may be others as well that we st still haven't found. Right. That's also possible. And so this is 15 percent. So you could either say 15 uh, percent. That's not a lot. There's 85 percent out there, you know, that don't have it. But you could also say it's 15 percent and it's definitely worth investigating them further because as we heard, we understand these forms better. Um, and we have also learned from these genetic forms that are, as I mentioned before, they are linked to the forms that do not have the um, monogenic or the, 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 the genetic causes because there are very similar mechanisms that underlie the disease. So this is the hope that the gene therapy may not only work uh, for patients with uh, you know, identified mutations, but that it could also potentially be targeting later, um, probably as a second step, people that don't have such mutations. Um, and what is also important to note as a, as a final comment, I suppose, is that these gene therapies, they're really novel. And this is really just in the research realm at this stage. And so therefore, they are only available in clinical trials. And you cannot just go to your local neurologist and say, you know, I want the gene therapy done. That's just not yet available. And we still have a lot more to do in this field. It's the most experimental therapy I can probably, it's to say that we currently are developing for PD. Thank you. So maybe we could um, take all of those segments sort of one by one and go a little bit deeper in. So um, Bradford, why don't I ask you, how does a gene therapy actually work? Like what exactly are you doing with a gene therapy? Thanks, Maggie. Yeah, let me answer that question, but let me let me start just a little earlier than that by, by thinking just a little about how we get to therapy more broadly, because I think that's really informative here. So if we think about conventional pharmaceuticals, whether that's something that comes uh, in a bottle at your, at your doctor's office or in a bottle of pills that you can rattle in your hand, developing those really relied on identifying these specific chemicals or molecules 
that can really change the conditions inside of our bodies to help improve our health and prevent symptoms and prevent the progression of those symptoms and, and ultimately reduce harm. And that's happened you know, throughout medical history, right? That's happened all the way from happy accidents, understanding the medical effects of certain plants and foods, um, all the way to you know, really sophisticated, more contemporary approaches where they, for example, grow lots of uh, cells in dishes, for example, and try to treat them with things just to help test on specific effects. That's been very effective, for example, in the cancer field uh, where, where you can test certain molecules. And so each of those kind of requires, requires this very specific testing approach. Uh, and so throughout, the, throughout history, we really wanted to find a more targeted way to get it at modifying the things that we really think are going wrong in a disease, in this instance, Parkinson's, right? And so that technology has really come just very recently, as Dr. Klein said, uh, in the form of this gene therapy. And it's really an exciting and emerging area. And so that's where we get to like how it specifically works to, to answer your specific question. So um, if you think about, again, all those genes, you know, we know a lot about them. We know about how they work, not only in disease, how they may go wrong, but also a lot more about how they may work just to keep us healthy. Again, how to help our, our cells grow, divide, our bodies stay and maintain everything that they need. And we call those uh, molecular or, or biochemical pathways, right? Just, just how everything works together. You can think of it as like, um, if all the proteins are gears, this is, this is how they kind of come together as a clock, right? And so understanding that mechanism helps us to understand like, well, if X is broken, then, you know, how do we get around that? You know, is there, is there something that we can do? Can we turn that gear faster? Can we get a bigger gear or a better gear, right? And so gene therapy allows us to do that by introducing those genes, those modified versions of a gear back into the cells of the body. And so it's a, it's a really exciting approach because it lets us really take a very rational, uh, very thoughtful, um, you know, hypothesis-driven way of going back to develop those medications and not have to rely on like, do we have a chemical that does it? Can we find something? You know, where, how, where do we look for it? And instead, you're actually introducing that into the body. So there's a couple different ways we can do it. I'm happy to go into the details. I want to be mindful of time here. But again, the, the, the core technology is really, again, about introducing that into the body uh, in a way that your body can take that gene, can use it just like the genes that exist inside, even the ones that may be broken, to try to improve the health of, of that patient. So as you said, we can, um, we can fix what went wrong, but we can also perhaps work on the full product or, you know, who's something else that would, even if this isn't working the way it should, we can make up for it with other things, or we can, you know, try to improve the, the product or, you know, to use your, your analogy, if there's a little bit too much uh, salt, maybe you, you know, add in a little bit more sugar or something to, to even it out. Um, so Rich and Paula, you, Paula, you considered a gene therapy and then with COVID and some other um, contrib contributors, you are not currently enrolled in the study, but you did speak with your physician about enrolling in a gene therapy trial. And so I would love to hear from you, what was that sort of education curve like for you? And you know, how did your physician explain this approach and its potential in impacting your Parkinson's disease? Okay, well, I have an excellent uh, movement specialist. I who's very into research and finding the best things for his patients. He suggested, because I had the uh, genetic testing, that I consider a gene therapy trial. He was actually one of the centers for one of these genetic therapy programs, um, trials, I should say. Um, as you mentioned, it got shut down for COVID. And then the center that he's in, temporarily, I guess, 
dropped out of the study. I, I don't know if they're going to come back in or out. I'm not currently enrolled in the study, but I would absolutely consider going back in if that's possible. I figured that instead of waiting for my PD to progress, if I could get some help along the gene therapy lines, why not? You said knowing that cause um, and being able to, to approach that specifically was really appealing yes. for you, knowing it was a GBA and that this gene therapy would potentially introduce um, a working GBA gene. Exactly. So we we discussed that um, some of these, they're only available in clinical trials, and I wanted to point to a slide that all our attendees should be able to access in the resource list, which has a listing of, there are currently two active recruiting trials and one that is active but not recruiting anymore. They're following the participants and analyzing that data. And if you happen to be in those studies, thank you for your contributions to that science, but you can learn more about where they're recruiting and how to get in touch with those um, studies more through that link in the resource list. But I wanted to advance us to the next slide and it actually builds on the second point from the last one, which is that these are not just for people with known PD mutations. And we've talked about this a little bit, but maybe we could talk about if you are not fixing what you know goes wrong, if you are not in that 15% that as you said, Dr. Klein has been identified to a Parkinson's linked mutation. Dr. Casey, maybe you could tell us for that 85%, what exactly would you be doing with the gene therapy? What are some of the targets or the strategies that are in testing? Sure. Yeah, th those are very important questions. So um, it's it's definitely important to think about the the overall significance, which, as you mentioned, Maggie, is is not limited to people who may have one of these very specific mutations. We think that that is uh, an early place where we're going to learn a lot, and and those are many of the, the the current gene therapy approaches that have been considered both in Parkinson's and in other disorders are focused on those those specific genetic mutations because we know a little bit more about that mechanism that may be broken, and it's a little clearer like where we want to target it, right? But we we know a lot of things about Parkinson's, and one of them is that again, as Dr. Klein mentioned. Um, only about 15, maybe 20% of people have an identifiable risk that's tied to one specific mechanism. And yet, we have a lot of Parkinson's patients out there, and those patients have a lot of the same symptoms. They have a lot of the same progression in their disease, uh, and they have a lot of the same features if you look at it on, on, a, on a chemical or molecular level, right? So uh, we, we know that there's a lot more in common than just that, that mutation itself. So we think that, that again, these, uh, these gene therapies may allow us to, to intervene in some of those mechanisms. And even though people may not have a specific mutation, it may also support the, the broader system. You know? And so, um, as, as was mentioned, some of these therapies are really targeted around those specific uh, mutations and, and maybe improving something very specific. GBA1, again, uh, which I know we've discussed here today, is, is one of those. We know the function of that protein, which encodes an enzyme. Um, and so by, by changing how, how that is working, we think that that may improve it. But it's not just for people that have that specific mutation or, uh, or a GBA mutation overall. We think that the GBA pathway is important for patients that don't have that mutation, for Parkinson's patients that don't have that mutation. And so we think that by uh, kind of restoring function in that pathway or improving its ability to work, uh, that we may see other people have major improvements in, in their symptoms. It may help prevent additional damage, for example. And so it's just really important to remember that we all rely on those systems. Again, as I always point out to people, people will say like, well, I have 
the, the GBA gene, for example, or the LARC2 gene, but, but we all do. We all have that plus the synuclein gene and many others. And so again, there's a lot more that's in common, uh, even if you don't have that mutation and making sure that we're restoring the health of that system more broadly is a, is a broader goal of gene therapy. So there's other uh, approaches in addition to just the, the more PD gene, if you will, targeted approaches. And those include things like uh, neurotrophic factors, right? So these are, these are proteins that our body uses. They're signaling proteins, essentially, that, that help our body understand that they need to, to grow, for example, or stop growing. And so the, the thought there is that by in, enhancing the activity of those, those pathways in our bodies, we may be able to support the, the, the survival of, of neurons that may remain, things like that. And that's not tied to a specific mutation. That's t we think that that's tied more to the, the hallmark uh, loss of those neurons in Parkinson's patients. And so there's a lot of hope that that can help prevent that damage, perhaps even reverse some of it um, in, in some ways. And so it's just really important, to, again, to remember that there's different types of gene therapies, but ultimately they're all targeted at trying to restore the health of the system more broadly and, and understanding both those targeted ones, those gene-specific ones, but then also the system-wide ones uh, is really where we see the, the merit of, of gene therapy more as an overall approach. Dr. Klein, would those other strategies have application if you knew, knew that your Parkinson's was not from a genetic source? I think we talk to a lot of people who say, I worked at a, you know, a metal processing facility, or I worked in agriculture, or I was a, um, am a veteran, and I was exposed to Agent Orange, or another environmental factor that, similar to genetics, we know there are some very strong links there to Parkinson's cause. And so if you fall into that camp, would some of these other alternative gene therapy approaches work for you? Yeah, that that's a, an excellent question. Thank you very much for asking it. I, uh, I, I would say yes, um, and I think I really like the baking analogy. So, uh, so um, you know, when it comes to risk and the environment, when we talk about the environment, we're mostly talking about risk. Maybe I have to take one step back. Um, so, when it comes to um, analyzing our genome, we're very good now. So we can analyze our entire genome in less than a day, um, and we'll get the results. So it's, this is really amazing. And this is a development that's you know relatively recent over the last decade or so. Um, when it comes to the environment, we're not that good. So we have, typically we have certain ideas and we have certain, and this includes pesticides, for example. So we know, and there is a lot of data there, that you know pesticide exposure can increase the risk. Um, but we have no evidence, and you know, at, at least in the doses that are typically used in agriculture, that this would cause PD. So, and again, I think taking, um, you know, again one step back and thinking about this, uh, this uh, likelihood. So, if you think about, you know, the risk of developing PD for anybody that's born today, so a healthy baby, what's the risk of developing PD in a lifetime? It's way less than 1%. So if, if we then um, double the risk, for example, which sounds scary, right? It's, or even triple the risk, which sounds very scary. But then the risk, the lifetime risk, um, you know, by, for example, having been exposed to you know, a particular environmental factor, um, th that sounds very scary. But when you really think it through, um, you'll end up with a risk that's still less than 2-3% lifetime risk. So I think that's a very important consideration that we don't 
get too scared um, in that kind of scenario and don't blame too much on these um, environmental factors. Plus, there's another problem that we don't have with the genes. The genes, we, we are born with the genes. The genes can, you know, be modified, you know, throughout our lives. That That is important. We haven't talked about that and it's not today's topic, but there are, we call it epigenetics. So there are changes throughout our lifetime. However, it does connect to the environment. Because we're thinking that some, at least some of these changes are actually uh, conferred by environmental factors. So there is a link there. Um, but what is what makes it so difficult? We, we have no way, like unlike in the genome, to study the entire environmentome, if, if I may use that term. Um, we, we can't do that. And not only that, but we may be interested in the environmental factors that we were exposed to like 30 years ago, 40 years ago, maybe since birth, or maybe even already during pregnancy. And we have hardly any way of doing this. So this is just, I think, you know, to put this into perspective, we have very, very bad tools at the moment to study the environment when it comes to, you know, compared to genetics. I think that's important to understand and not to jump to conclusions where we don't have a good scientific or technical even basis for. But still, but I didn't answer your, your okay. question. So, so <laughs> I can tell you are very yeah. oh, um, passionate about it. <laughs> that, that, but that is quick. I mean, I said at the at the beginning, yes. I think it's just like with the genetic risk factors. Um, it's you don't have to have a specific mutation. I think um, Dr. Casey explained this very well. So there are all these supporting factors um, that could also be enhanced by, by gene therapy. And one of the one of the approaches actually does exactly this. And so I think this would be as helpful to somebody who has more of an environmental risk as to someone who has more of a genetic risk. In fact, and I don't want to complicate things, um, but I would not even be surprised, and this is now, you know, at least 10 years into the future, but if we might even at some point, um, you know, consider even combinations. So, for example, I think it could make a lot of sense um, if we have somebody with a mutation to try and correct that um, and or do something specific against that mutation with gene therapy. And, and on top of that, provide these growth factors, for example, to help those neurons that are still there, because, you know, by the time somebody develops the first signs of Parkinson's, already a lot of cells, you know, have passed away. They're already gone. So I think it might be very, very clever and, and, and smart to actually potentially even combine these um, these these two these two different strategies. And while I think it's somewhat easier or maybe easier for us to understand how to tackle a, a monogenic or genetic condition, I think, uh, you know, the others, the non-genetic or non-monogenic ones, I think can definitely benefit also from gene therapy. I, I would predict that. We don't have that data yet, but that will be my prediction. Yeah. So protecting brain cells, even if you know and fix the cause of Parkinson's could be beneficial. And you use the term growth factor. I don't think we've introduced that um, into this discussion yet, but that's, as Dr. Casey was saying, the sort of protect the cells and, and help them survive. And um, I just have one other question. If my genes are changing over time, why am I more and more like my mother? Can you answer that? No. Okay, we're, we're moving on. We, our last slide before we go to Q&A is that um, considering a gene therapy trial. So all trials have risks and benefits. And so as uh, I think Dr. Casey, you alluded earlier, this is a really new approach for us in Parkinson's disease. And with that comes a lot of unknowns. So I'm actually gonna start with um, Paula and Rich, you and hear a little bit again, when you were considering this therapy, what were some of the discussions that you were having yourselves and with your physician and your family to talk about, okay, it's a little bit invasive and we can talk about that, but it's also a one-time thing. There's, there's 
items on both sides of the list. So maybe you could run us through that. Okay, so I'll start, but Rich will pick up because he only feeds me positive news. I want to dig my head in the sand if there's negative stuff. So I'm a big baby, and I wanted to know if I did participate in this genetic uh, uh, therapy trial, well, how would it be? Uh, how would they do it? What would be the side effects? Do they have any idea what those side effects might be? Is this a one and done, et cetera, et cetera, Rich? <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I mean, the, 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 the big benefit is that uh, there's uh, a logical scientific reason behind why the gene therapy would greatly slow down or halt the progression of, of Polis PD. So that's a huge positive. The one and done was considered to be a, a huge positive. Um, obviously, the way that it's implemented does involve a neurosurgeon. So there are risks associated with the procedure. Um, the way that it's done does involve um, introducing a, um, a, a non-replicating virus into the brain. And, and sometimes, you know, people can get an, an immune response to that, which has to be treated. But they are, are developing we, other ways. Oh, uh, absolutely. That's, that's not a done deal. Absolutely. Um, it, we were looking at doing this right when COVID was hitting. Mm -hmm. And as part of this, you'd have to be taking some immunosuppressants. So, you know, that was a risk given given COVID. And, and of course, um, one and done is is the, the real positive, but this stays with you forever. So we're looking for this over the next 40, 50, 60 years. And, and obviously, there isn't any any long-term track record as to what this might look like over that kind of time period. But, you know, again, the underlying rationale was there and very attracted to have a one-and-done kind of, of approach. So, um, you And know, quite frankly, I'd be happy. If it, I do not have any expectations that it would reverse or cure my Parkinson's at this point, but if it could halt the progression, I'd be okay with that. Dr. Casey, anything to add? Um around the sort of current state of where we are with these trials as it pertains to understanding if they're safe and if they work. Sure, that's a, again, um, you know, this is this is really an area of very active development. And it's important to understand that it's, it's not just in Parkinson's disease. Um, gene therapy has been uh, a, a real priority for the field more broadly to try to understand a lot of different things. But as, as uh, Rich mentioned, there's there is something that is specific about Parkinson's, which is that one of the one of the key things about gene therapy is that it is often going to be delivered right where we think it is needed most. In this case, in the brain of patients, right. And so there is uh, a need to involve a neurosurgeon in that in that procedure. And while this is done really with uh, with very high level safety um, concerns in mind, um, there there is a risk there, right. Uh, as we have seen this field emerge and, and progress, we've seen a lot of differences and, and the technologies, again, have improved over time in terms of getting things where they need to be, trying to find ways to make sure that they are uh, safe in, in the first place, that they can be tested ahead of time. This has been tested in what's called preclinical systems, right, which, which includes a, a lot of different things. But so by the time it gets to a human trial, a lot of effort has really been made to make sure that things are as safe as they can be before we before we uh, have patients involved in that equation at all. Um, I, I think one thing that's really important to recognize is that we we fundamentally don't know just what 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 can happen for some of these things. But again, a lot of the the early strategies in gene therapy are again focused on trying to support the mechanisms that the body is already using. So, for example, in in the GBA example that we discussed. 
that's about introducing a healthy copy of that gene essentially into into the into the body right so it's it's not uh, as foreign as we might think you're you're really borrowing a, a healthy copy from from what we know more broadly than than just starting from scratch for example so it's while it is experimental there's a there's a lot of thought and consideration that goes into finding the most uh, safe and reliable strategy that we can come up with um, that that is going to help the most people um, more broadly. So, and, and that's really, that's the ultimate goal of everyone that's working on these therapies across the board. The other piece that I, I want to talk about is, is in terms of those benefits. You know, um, the, the goal, of course, is to have kind of a one and done solution. But we, because we don't know the, the, the lifetime of how these treatments may work, um, there may be a need for people to go back. Uh, that may provide an opportunity for, again, these types of cocktail approaches, right, where we may have more than one gene therapy approach. And at the end of the day, we also don't know that this is going to completely um, re remove people's need to have other treatments, including things like levodopa support, potentially DBS in some cases, um, all of these, these different things that we're already using for, for Parkinson's patients more broadly. So it's important to remember that this, like anything, is a complex decision. You really need to talk to your, your care provider and movement disorder specialist about, about what's best for you and whether you're a good candidate for it uh, and think about that very, very deeply. Okay, I just want to underscore the, that a lot of safety work has been done before it makes it to humans. There are ethical review boards that are looking at the data from the models and the protocol and scheduled to try to balance those benefits and risk, reduce the risk as much as possible and protect um, the very generous research partners volunteering for these studies. So I have some other questions on this topic that folks from the audience have asked, but that's a good segue then to our Q&A session. So before we do that, I um, am obligated by my own love, love of um, this study and just our foundation priorities to mention our PPMI study, which is the source of a lot of data and findings around not only genetics, but as we were discussing this interplay with different genes and proteins and what goes wrong in Parkinson's and how we might better diagnose and intervene even before the onset of symptoms. So if you have not already engaged anyone age 18 or older can participate in PPMI, then please visit that website and join the study that is already changing everything. Um, now, as I said, we already have some great questions from our audience and we will spend the next um, 12 to 13 minutes going through some of um, what our audience is wondering about. So. Dr. Klein, I'm going to um, sort of build on the, the conversation we were just having um, about this sort of healthy gene and putting in something that, that we feel pretty confident about. So one question that we got was, how do you know that there won't be an unknown change that, you know, some, that your body might react differently or, you know, I don't know, everything from I'll suddenly you know, become a blonde to <laughs> who knows what uh, would happen from changing your genes. It sounds a little scary. Maybe you can address that. Yes. Um, yes. So uh, thank you for this important question. And I, I can totally understand that this really, you know, would come up within this, this topic um, and is something to wonder and maybe also to worry about. And um, so um, first of all, and this we heard already, um, the genes need to get, uh, gene therapy needs to get 
you know, there where it's needed, and that is the brain. So there could be, and that's probably something that I would consider, you know, one of the more likely events to happen potentially, although we have measures, you know, against this as well, could be that your immune system, for example, recognizes, um, you know, something and there may be, you know, a, a small immune response or something like this. But this all, as we heard, will be, you know, carefully um, monitored and, and you know, and also prevented as, as much as possible. But I guess your question is not really that, but rather, um, you know, what is it, the genetics that are being introduced? And, and again, we, I think building on what was just said by Maggie is really important. Um, and I think we have to understand uh, a little bit more just one step of the biology because the genes, there can be two different, you know, broadly speaking, two different scenarios. Either you can be uh, lacking a gene um, because it's mutated or you can even you know, lose a copy, that's also possible, or you can have too much function of a gene or gene product of the of the actual protein. And those are obviously two different, um, two, two very different scenarios, right? And you would also devise different types of gene therapy. So if you, and that I think is probably a lot less scary to begin with, if you're, if you're missing, um, you know, a certain gene and you're just replacing exactly what is missing and we can, you know, we can really determine very exactly in your genetic, you know, by genetic testing, what is missing and how big that piece is. So if you really just replace it, then I think, you know, I, I would not see too much of a risk there. Um, if you want to, if you have the opposite situation where you have too much function or too much of a gene, which I mentioned before with the alpha nuclein, you want to, you know, um, turn that down. But then, of course, but then the same applies to some extent to if you're, you know, missing something. Um, it's a very fine balance, as you as you may imagine. So the, the, one of the potential, you know, risks lies and that needs to be, again, you know, carefully monitored and, and you know, kept at a very, very tight balance. You don't want to have too much and you don't want to have too too little. So that's, that's important. Um, and that is something where, again, Theoretically, there are risks um, that you, you know, for example, that you are silencing something too much or that you are increasing some function too much. So that is also possible that you would turn into something different, a different person or that genes, you know, would have a mind of their own or travel somewhere or something that is not something that would. So, so the technique around this, um, you know, um, and, and I'm sure everyone has a, has good knowledge. Um, of course, the immunization that we had against COVID is not a gene therapy, but it. I think we all learned a lot about, you know, um, um, about general biological principles, and again, those never change your genome. So, um, I think that's true for the for the gene therapy approaches too, um, broadly speaking. Dr. Casey, next question to you. We've talked a lot about gene therapy as a means to slow, stop, prevent overall disease progression. Is there any application for specific symptoms, pain, autonomic dysfunction, cognitive impairment that we know are unfortunately part of the slew of experiences one has with Parkinson's disease? Yeah, it's a great question. So um, at, at present, the, the, the current therapies, the current gene therapies that are in trials are not targeted towards those specific symptoms. In the future, I would imagine that we will see that, but, um, but I think that it will depend on identifying again whether those are specific genes or mutations in those genes, or just a better understanding of the biology of those specific symptoms, um, identifying those targets that then can be pursued using gene therapy. So we don't have any in, in trials yet, but that's definitely an area of interest uh, as, as are more general uh, strategies to, to modify the course of the disease. And I know your team and others at the foundation are really fixated on 
better understanding the circuitry and the molecular issues that lead to different subtypes or, or kinds of disease and symptoms. So thank you for that work. Hopefully that will lead us down that path. Switching gears a bit, um, Dr. Klein, deep brain stimulation and gene therapy. Some of the ones that are active exclude people who have had DBS from their trials. Is that more of a testing thing or would the therapies have application for people who have DBS? Um, it's a very, very good question. Admittedly, I'm not a DBS expert, um, but, you know, just from my general knowledge, I would say, um, you know, for the trials, obviously people for, tr for trials, and this is, as we mentioned, is, you know, one of the most experimental treatments for PD that we currently have. So one would probably at this stage select people, um, you know, with the least of potentially interfering um, other therapies or, you know, changes in the brain and obviously, you know, sticking in an electrode, uh, you know, changes things. So just because also the numbers of individuals that go into such a trial are relatively slow, uh, small, um, it is very, and we want to see the effects, right? We don't want to uh, muddy the waters by, you know, introducing too many different um, variables that then make it very difficult for us to disentangle what is the effect of the gene therapy and what maybe may have been something else. So I think at this stage, it's probably... Um, likely and probably also a wise decision to to you know to select a patient population as homogeneous as possible and with as little interference as possible but i think in the future um i i do not think that the, those should exclude each other. In, in fact, uh, as one already has the electrodes in a place, you know, where we want um, potentially gene therapy also to act, maybe there could even be, but now I'm wildly speculating, uh, maybe there could even be like in the future, uh, you know, it could be even uh, an advantage in, in a way. But, but like I said, this is really a speculation. I think we can tell from this conversation, you know, why you're so prolific in this field, because you're always thinking like, 10 steps ahead. Here we are. But what if we could do this? And unrealistic expectations. I think that's not fair either. So um, we can be, I think, excited and work hard, you know, towards this. But but I think we, we also should stress that we are, it's still early days. But it, it's a good comment on the fact that, you know, we talked about risks and benefits and one of the potential impacts of choosing any therapy approved like DBS or something experimental like gene therapy means that it might impact what other sort of studies you can be involved in. And Rich and Paula, as you are both in so many observational and therapeutic studies, maybe you could just talk about how you see your position in the research um, in ecosystem and, you know, if, how you think about if I do this, I might not be able to do that. And how you weigh all of the different opportunities that you're presented with to contribute in that way. That was actually a huge factor in my deciding to enroll in that particular gene therapy trial that I started with, because it was very clearly explained that they need to understand if they did this gene therapy on me, what were the things that would then happen in the future to my body and my Parkinson's that they could attribute completely to that therapy program and not to some other medicines or trials or whatever that I had had. Um, we do research trials because the more data that scientists and researchers and doctors have, the better they will be equipped to help find a cure for PD. And if I, if I could just add some to that, uh, Paula obviously participates as someone with PD, with a GBA mutation. I participate as someone who is a control 
And Paula's brother, who has a mutation but no PD, is of extreme interest to researchers. So if family members are thinking about, do we should we get genetically tested? Um, I would say that if they have an inclination to help the research, they absolutely should because that that's just a, a huge need and it just makes us feel better participating in research. We feel like we are potentially part of the solution. Well, you, you certainly are. We're um, we're getting close to the end of our hour, and you know that's such a nice uh, sentiment to to end on. Certainly, as I started our discussion, our goal was to talk about this emerging therapeutic approach and share information and motivations that you have, so that people feel more equipped when hopefully these opportunities are presented to them as well, or when they're discussing any research opportunity, because as you said, Paula, you know, more data is the only way, more information is the way that we're going to learn more about, as we've covered today, the many variations of Parkinson's disease that exist and the many ways that we may stop it. So um, Dr. Casey and then Dr. Klein, I would love to perhaps just hear some parting words from you about just the overall uh, schema of therapeutic development, gene therapy or otherwise, and how you're feeling on the Parkinson's research programs overall. Absolutely. So for one, I mean, I'm, I am really uh, both inspired and, and enabled to, to do the type of research that, that we work on here at the foundation because of people like Paula and Rich, right? We do really need a participation by people, not just that have Parkinson's, but also that don't. And that's the kind of uh, participation that really enables us to make those key discoveries and actually drive things forward. I'm really optimistic right now about not only gene therapy, but uh, but other strategies that, that are in, in process. Um, but I think more broadly, thinking through the impact of genetics and how genetics can help inform all these different treatment developments is really, I think that we are just really on the cusp of some really big discoveries. And that's largely, uh, that's largely due to the, the contributions of people, not just here in the US, but around the world. And so that's, that's one thing I'm really excited about right now. And in fact, I get to work with, with Dr. Klein on a project that's very focused on that and helping to make sure that, um, that our understanding and, and, and our treatment strategies are designed around that, that more diverse community. Thank you. That's wonderful. And because it was exactly what I wanted to, uh, you know, uh, mention. And, and of course, I can only echo what uh, Dr. Casey just said. But um, being from outside the U.S., um, I think, and this needs to be said here as well, that Michael J. Fox Foundation does an absolutely amazing job of being global. And you said it's a global disease and we're all working together. And we just had a PPM. We're part of this PPM study that, that was the PPMI study that was just mentioned. We just had a visit here from the Michael J. Fox Foundation. And we had a patient also at this um, event, um, who very similar to you, uh, Paula and Rich, uh, expressed similar sentiments. And I was very touched um, by this because it's, it is a global phenomenon. And I think we have to work all together. We have to work together at the patients and the persons with Parkinson's disease, the caregivers, the therapists, of course, the, uh, the clinicians, the doctors, the researchers, and also, of course, the funders. And, uh, and this, I think this is a great example. So we're here all together and only together we can solve this. And as Dr. Casey just said, I think, um, the prospects are really promising. Like I said, I want to be, you know, somewhat um, modest um, because we have seen also other things that did not work as well as we had hoped. So let's be a little bit careful, but I think things are moving in the right direction. We're all working together on this and that's the key to success, to do this together. And uh, I'm grateful uh, for, for being able to participate a little bit in this and uh, for having been here today. And, and yeah, it was just wonderful to uh, also read your questions and interact. Thank you for that. 
Yes, thank you all, Paula, Rich, Christine, Bradford, for being with us, and all of you who are watching. Thank you for giving us your time. We hope that you found it beneficial and that you'll engage with research opportunities or the foundation um, further. Thank you and have a great rest of your day. Did you enjoy this podcast? Share it with a friend or leave a review on iTunes. It helps listeners like you find and support our mission. Learn more about the Michael J. Fox Foundation at michaeljfox.org. Thanks for listening. This is Michael J. Fox. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Learn more about the Michael J. Fox Foundation's work and how you can help speed a cure at michaeljfox.org.